Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This time we're going to be in Nehemiah 13, and the last time we talked about sacrifice, okay? So we, we normally sacrifice. You love somebody and you give things up and, you know, and this is part of the relationship that God has given us. But remember, we also are supposed to have a relationship with the Lord. You know, some people enjoy religion because religion lets them just come at a certain place at a certain time, do a certain thing, and then when they leave the church, there's no more obligation. But Christ calls us to have a relationship with us, you know, with him. You know, he's designed us. It's kind of weird why, how we have a relationship with spouses and kids and friends and stuff. Why would we not think that the author and the creator of those relationships would not want an even better relationship between his creation and him? He's a father. He's our heavenly father. So we sacrifice. We talked about sacrifice for the Lord. And today is the last chapter in Nehemiah, and I'm going to kind of give an overview at the end. And you know, what did we learn? What did the book teach us about Nehemiah and, and his relationship with God? But the title is Chipping Away at the Spiritual Walls. So you can see in the 5th century BC, look it up in your history books. As we close, I'll just kind of reiterate that this was a situation where the, uh, the temple had to go back up. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. The Jews rebuilt it. Uh, the Persians let them go back and rebuild it. Uh, under Nehemiah, the Persians let them go back again. I believe this was the third time. Uh, and he had built the walls and the gates. So this is a 5th century B.C. fact. Everything goes up. There's a great revival. The people are rejoicing. They're excited. They're going to promise God all these things. And Nehemiah, now this leader, this godly man, goes back to Shushan. He goes back to the Persian seat of government. And at some point, he returns back to Jerusalem. And he still sees the walls and the gates and the temple. And, you know, it's just like life. On the outside, everything looks great, the facade. But when he gets in, what he realizes is that the people have gone back to spiritual decadence. And it's heartbreaking, you know. And what happens is, in life, and we can run into this too, is a chipping away. We try to maintain something. We try to maintain a defensive position. And there's this constant chipping. So whether we're talking about, just a little spiritual analogy here, we could be talking about a war, offense versus defense. We can talk about our personal lives. We could talk about spiritual things. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta, we have to build up uh, hedges in our lives right? because these things can happen. We, we might, in this very room, have promised God this and promised God that and get all emotional, and before you know it, a few weeks go by and we're back to doing what we used to do before. So just real quick, defense versus offense. If you're, if you're defending a castle or defending a walled city, um, you can't just play defense. The, you're getting, being besieged, they're, they're firing mortars at you, they're trying to scale the walls. Uh, you can't just say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm back in my, my little walled kingdom here. You have to offensively put the attackers back so that that city and that, that kingdom can be uh, protected. It's the same thing in life. You know, we can sit here and say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm doing the best I can and I'm, I'm kind of living in my own little corner of the world over there and I hope nobody bothers me. But the enemy will keep chipping and chipping and chipping and chipping away to try to break us down, to try to take away from us. You know, evil is a, a parasite to the host of good. So there needs to be offensive tools as well. As Christians, we need to be praying. 
the Bible says that when we pray, all of a sudden we're transported uh, in this, into his kingdom, into his throne room, and we can actually ask him for things. And we can actually pull down strongholds, cast down arguments. You know, like I was talking about that article just before the sermon. I do a lot of apologetics, which means I'm trying to explain to the world, who's become, especially the Western society, is becoming very post-Christian. It's becoming very hostile to Christianity. So it's my job to go out there and, and look at these things. Well, I never heard that about Piltdown Man or Nebraska or Lucy or any of that. I didn't know that. And then they look for themselves and say, you know what, you're right. Maybe the biblical view is accurate. And these are, the, these are our offensive weapons. Not to be offensive, okay, to be a play on words, but to use our offensive weapons. Prayer, reading the word of God, giving the good news of the gospel. Christ came. God sacrificed his son to die for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Apologetics, etc. So we, we want to be defensive. And we want to maintain the walk, but we also want to be, use our offensive weapons, too, to repel the enemy and to cast down the lies and those arguments and to war for people's souls and to bring them into the kingdom, and that's going to change things. I might talk just a little bit about, in general, the, the idea of the elections and people's ideas of how both sides think that their Messiah is going to come in and change everything and make everything great. And honestly, I just, to me... It's going to be Christ. And if this country keeps pushing God away, he's going to say, okay, you can have the leaders you want. You can have the country you want. I'm, you know, don't expect me to be a huge part of what you guys are doing because you've forsaken me. And we'll talk about that as well. So we're going to look at four points to this and make our applications for today's, uh, you know, for today's world. So chapter 13, it says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the congregation of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water through the wilderness wandering. The children of Israel wanted to pass through their territory and many nations repelled them. They said, we don't want you. We're not going to help you. You know, starve, be thirsty. You know, we're not going to. But they hired Balaam, so they made it even worse. They hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. You know, Balaam the prophet and Balak the king, Numbers 22. Uh, the king said, I, I hate those children of Israel, curse them. And God turned that curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now this could be argued, as you really go through this, um, again, God's word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. However, chapter delineations are not necessarily. Somebody put them in, and they're not evil, they just was a way to break up the letters, you know. To read chapter 1 through 13 was a big undertaking. So if you could break up chapters, it would be easier to study chapters and verses, etc. Those came later on. So it could be argued that this is part of chapter 12. If you covered 12, you'd say, oh yeah, Pastor Joe, I get that. It does make sense that it was part of the last chapter. Or it's a precursor to understanding the whole situation with Tobiah the Ammonite. Remember, God warned his people right into the law. In Deuteronomy, he warned them. And he said, these folks are going to oppose you. They're going to try to harm you. They're going to try to infiltrate you. And the, these groups would try to take the children of Israel. If they couldn't destroy them through war, they would try to destroy them through infiltration, get them to sin against themselves and get God to judge them for their, their bad behavior. However, <laughs> we, and this is my job, right? 
we read the news, and we know what's going on in American culture, and there's a lot of divisiveness, and you hear the word thrown around, xenophobia, fear of foreigners. We cannot take what we read in American culture and superimpose it into the Bible. That is not what this is about. This is about not an ethnic negative influence, but a spiritual negative influence. That's what's going on here. So God did not want there to be mixing unless there was a true conversion. Okay, let's see who's awake this morning. So who can tell me what woman was a Moabitess and forsook her demons, forsook her gods of the Moabites and became a believer? What woman? Call it out. Yell it. Well, you guys are good. Ruth. So did, did, when they took in Ruth and she became part of the, the, the bloodline of the Messiah, did they sin? Because they took in a Moabitess? No. She became a believer. She put her idols away. She put her deities away. So, see, it makes sense now, doesn't it? In those days, and it's funny, the parallels that we can make today, there were only two outcomes between a true believer and a heathen or a pagan. The first one was the believer would influence the heathen to salvation. And hopefully we're doing that. Or the heathen would influence the believer into apostasy. Well, that can happen too. So it's, again, relationships are dynamic, they're not static. So there was only one or two outcomes that could happen. Vance Havner spoke of a parallel of mixed multitudes who do not desire to do God's will and don't want God, but they infiltrate the church. He said, Satan isn't fighting churches, he's joining them. That's pretty profound. So that begs the question, what are we doing here this morning? Of all the possible reasons we could have for coming to church, the real answer, the right answer should be, I desire God. Can I tell you something? Raise my hand. I desire God. I'm here. I'm studying. When I study, when I read, I get blessed. You know? So the desire for all of us is to get more of God. That should be our motivation. A little side note in Scripture, it's very interesting that in period of, periods of decadency and then revival, and revival happened after reading God's Word. Right? The people would read God's word and go, wow, I didn't know that was in there. That happens on any given Sunday here or Wednesday. I didn't know that was in here. That's amazing. Well, I want to know more about this God. I want to know more. I, I never knew him. I was never taught this. Right? God was either his precepts or he was forgotten. Or in the case of a younger generation, they never knew that these things existed. I named my son Josiah after King Josiah. They're doing some work on the temple. They find the law. They go to the king and say, Josiah, look what we found. He reads and he goes, oh my goodness, this culture's really messed up. Boy, talk about American culture. You know, we read God's word. What does it tell us? Does it tell us everything's great in, in America? It doesn't. I hate to be the, the bearer of bad news, but that's, that's the case. And it's, it gets even worse is that in the Christian culture, what happens is, there's so many denominations, there's so many schisms today. And what happens is some of us, it doesn't make us special, but it just makes us obedient. In this church, we read God's word. We want to know it, he has the ultimate authority in his word. But then, it's funny, I just got something in the mail, um, and I opened it up, pastor's mail, from two cult groups, basically saying, don't worry about the word of God. What does the Bible really teach? It's so funny, I'm, I'm coming up here and I'm opening up my mail this morning and I'm looking at it and I'm like, these people are amazing. How can they twist the scriptures like this? See what I'm saying? So we live in a culture where under the guise of Christianity, um, there's no authority of God's word. They just believe whatever they want to believe. 
And what happens is Christianity becomes pluralistic. Right? It becomes dualistic. That's dangerous. So basically, there's no truth in culture because we all believe what we want to believe. Then when we come into the church, we have the same issue. Well, what about this subject? Well, this Christian group believes this, and that Christian group believes that. What does the, what does the word say? Oh, that's so archaic. We don't look at the word. We just, we're just going to live in dualism. That's ridiculous. That's heretical. Okay, so it's very important that we look at the Word of God. Today, that there's ministries, people will say, oh, I love that ministry. Terrible exposition of the Word, or non-existent. But the music, oh, the music, or the demographics. Look, there's so many young people here. Okay, but what are you learning when you go there? When you come out of that building, what did you gain spiritually that you didn't have before you walked into that place? And you know what that does? That feeds the problem in, in America. We're supposed to be setting the tone spiritually as Christians. And a lot, a lot aren't doing that. So let's look at these four issues. The first one, verse 4, it says, Now before this, Elishib, now that he was the high priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, or the physical structure of the temple, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem to discover the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw out all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back them into the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So evil alliances is the first thing. Yes, in the church. Yes, among believers, evil alliances. Nehemiah left to go back to Shushan, and he thought everything was fine. He put everything in order. He did his part, and evil influence started creeping back in to the house of God. Now, when we studied in, uh, on Wednesday night, I had put up a few slides about the temple. It was a huge structure. Right now, there's the Temple Mount. It's, it, it got wiped out twice in history, but it was a huge structure, and it had all these compartments and rooms, and Tobiah gets himself uh, a little office or an apartment in the temple where the articles of God are supposed to be. That's pretty messed up. And he even opposed building the walls and the gates. This is not good. And this is a huge disappointment. And it's a huge disappointment today when we see Christian leaders, if we know our Bibles, and they align themselves with bad people. And they're not looking to, to win them over. They're looking for, we see this all the time, political alliances. There's no politics in the church. I hear about politics in the church all the time. That's not a good thing. Or when, we, when there's a Christian college and they bring a speaker up and he or she speaks and they're speaking heresy and you're like, why would they bring that person up to speak to the students? There's enough falsity in, in this country and in this society and now you're, you're poisoning the young generation under the guise of a Christian college. Questionable. Questionable. You know what's really sad is that when a leader falls into false teaching or some type of cult, and, and it's, it's not a good thing, the followers often follow the leader. So guess what? Christian leaders, pastors, right, are trophies for Satan for this very reason. Satan is a master general. He's a master manipulator, and he's very smart, and he knows, why am I going to waste my time fiddling around with these 
basic people who warm the seats. Let me get the leaders of these big ministries, and if I can get them, then all those masses, my job is so much easier. And everybody's going off the cliff, not just a few people here and there in the seats. He knows what he's doing. He's very smart. So Nehemiah comes back from Jerusalem. Why does he come back? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. Was it from the Holy Spirit? Nehemiah, you need to go back there. It's not good. Was it a letter that he got from some of the faithful believers in Jerusalem saying, Nehemiah, you've got to come back here. It's not good. But he, he, he comes back, and it's, check it out. He throws all of Tobiah's things out. He basically, he, he evicts Tobiah. Um, it kind of reminds me, doesn't it remind you of when Jesus was in the temple? You know what I'm going to say, with the money changers. He just overturned their tables. He let the doves out. Uh, the money, you could, they've done movies about this. Money's coins roll over the floor. And boy, were they ticked off at him. Now, here's my, my question to you. And John, John tells us that he actually made a whip of cords. It's believed that he actually did it twice in his ministry that's recorded in Scripture. And he drove them all out. Okay? Was that nice? No, it really wasn't nice. But it wasn't intended to be nice. You know, we live in a culture, we're very squeamish today in American culture. We're very frightened of everything. We're frightened to say how we feel. Um, it's very politically correct. And tough love is, is not something that American culture likes to watch. You know, before I was a Christian, I was in the partying lifestyle. And it, on more than one occasion, if there was a person who was too drunk or took whatever and they could not drive... Um, some of his friends would love him enough to wrestle him down and take his keys. And probably to the observer, that didn't look pretty. However, it probably prevented somebody dying, either the driver or some innocent person, a bystander that that person ran over. All right, it's tough love. By the same token, Nehemiah knew. Nehemiah had the foresight. He knew that if he didn't do something, the people were going to bring judgment back on themselves and that place was going to be leveled again. So, oh, Nehemiah, you're supposed to be a man of God. Hey, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? What are you doing? I'm trying to save somebody's life. That's what I'm trying to do here. I like this in verse 6. Nehemiah, pretty much, he's pretty much saying <laughs> in his own pen, I wasn't there. <laughs> this happened, and it wasn't on my watch. You know what I'm saying? I was out of town that day. But uh, I just, I love the human part of the scripture. I love the part that it's, it's, it's real. You know what I'm saying? It, this, Nehemiah was a real person like you and me. Verse 8, it said, He grieved me bitterly. This guy's a passionate man who loved the Lord, and he loved his people. Make no mistake, he loved his people. You know? and, he didn't, and, and some of them were too dumb to realize that judgment, they were going to bring judgment on themselves. So he did the work for them. And it probably didn't make him popular. Right? So evil alliances. Do we see them in the Christian culture? Sure we do. In the uh, social media generation, everybody's friends with everybody. You know, and I tell you what, my experiences, I've said this before, the biggest gossips and slanderers have the biggest followings on Facebook because person's afraid to take a stand because they know that the cannon's going to be aimed on them next. We, this, this, did God call us to be cowards? You know what I'm saying? When we take a stand, when we become leaders, you're going, to get, you're going to get abused. You just know it. You live long enough, you experienced it. Verse 10, it says, I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field 
So the second out of four is neglecting the ministry of God yet again. So what did the Levites do? These guys were amazing. They were instrumental. They supported the priests. They supported the ministry at the temple. They did the teaching. Last chapter, we saw that they also did wor- they led worship. Levites were generalists. They pretty much did everything. And when the Levites were not supported, what did they have to do? They had to go back to secular work. Oh, the people aren't. The tithe was supposed to prevent that. You know, people aren't supporting the Levites. Levites got to feed their families. What a shame. And it's very sad to see a true work of the Lord neglected by God's people in any generation, not just this generation. Verse 11. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shemaiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and the Levites, Padiah. And next to them was Hanan the son of Zachor, the son of Madaniah. And they were considered faithful, faithful. And their task was to distribute to the brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services." So Nehemiah sets things in order yet again. He has no problem rebuking the leadership. Could you imagine in American politics if somebody who was a born-again believer who really lived a really good and godly life, God put them in Washington, and he just went out and just started rebuking our politicians. I've seen videos of the halls of certain chambers in government and uh, the special interest groups and and the, the, the assembly people, the Congress, you know, all these different uh, representatives, and how they're all in bed with all these special interest groups. You know, all these laws that are passed, a lot of them, they've done studies, they don't affect us. They're not for us. They're for the ones that grease their palms. You know, a person gets into office, and these shadowy figures come in and say, remember us? We got you here. We lent you the money. Now you owe us. You don't think that happens? If you don't think that happens, you're naive. So Nehemiah goes in to these halls and he says, this is wrong. Nehemiah had a target put on his back, but the cool thing was that God had his back. This was, you know, it's funny, we read, the, we read about the Apostle Paul. Oh, he must have been a great guy. Oh, Nehemiah, what a great guy. Yeah, but the people, at the t- some of them probably really hated them. And Paul will tell you all the times they try to kill him. You just couldn't kill this guy. You know, God wasn't done with him. That's the beautiful thing, too. If God is using you, you're immortal until he's done using you. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You know, you, he will allow you to be used to accomplish his will. And he will not allow anything to happen to you, at least until that will has been accomplished. So you see this with Nehemiah. I love this in verse 13. It says, he found some men considered faithful. Okay, what this word means is trustworthy, honest, and of good character. Remember we talked about the valiant men the last time? These valiant men, they were warriors, but they were men of good character. These guys were faithful. And I guess my question is, are we faithful? Do we follow through? Can somebody count on us? An even better question is, are we raising our kids to be faithful? That's a good question. I wonder what my son's generation is going to look like when you know, Pastor Vinny and Pastor Paul and, and, and me, and we're all can't see to read the word, and you know, we're just... It's just too feeble, and, and our kids and grandkids and your kids and grandkids are running the church. You know, what's it going to look like? Is it going to be a faithful generation? Well, I certainly hope so. And my son knows this, that if he takes a stand for something that's right, 
The whole world could be against him, but my wife and I will be on him like bookends. We will be there to support him, right? Come hell or high water. And that's what we need to be teaching our kids. It isn't about popularity. It isn't about how many friends you have. You know, it's about, are we faithful to God? Listen, I'm, I'm, it's, it, we, and we, in, the, in the DeProsimo house, we have this thing. My son is an honor roll, but my thing is that, is that that's great. But I also never want his academics, which are tethered to this world, to surpass where he is spirituality. You know, if that's the case, take a less course. Maybe it's not an honors course. I don't care. But I don't want anything interfering with his walk with the Lord. Yeah, that's how we feel. So Nehemiah, he, he replaces these... Can I tell you something? He replaced the leaders that he left that failed with new people. He starts replacing him. You can't do your job? Get out. I got somebody else I'm going to put in your spot. Don't we get frustrated when we see like some of these scandals in government and, and the leaders fight so hard to keep them in their spots? It, it, it irritates our sense of justice. Wait a minute. They're stealing money. They're not doing their job. Maybe somebody died on their watch. And you know what? It's frustrating. It's a shuffle game. They keep shuffling them because they shouldn't have that job anymore. They put somebody else in there who can do the job. And I'm going to tell you something. Um, when we see it in the church, it's even worse. Whether it's a pedophilia scandal or some type of money scandal, and that's why people don't want to come to church and you can't blame them. But I, I would say to those people, maybe you're here, maybe you were bribed to come here, um, Jesus is perfect. Follow Jesus, don't follow man. You know, when I hear of a scandal and a person did something horrible or victimized somebody and they send them to another state, what, to victimize new people? That person's a criminal. That person is a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. So it isn't just government. It's anywhere. You're not fit. Replace them. Take them out. There's a lot of leadership stuff in here. If you run a business or you're a CEO, you're some type of leader, or you're in clergy, this is, this is for you. Or, or maybe God has a calling on your life and you will be a leader and you just don't realize it yet. Think about the book of Nehemiah. Verse 14, uh, verses 14, 22, 29, 31, about remembering him and these good deeds. I'm going to touch that at the end. So we're going to move on to 15. It says, In those days I saw in Judah some people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wines, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them, about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Je and Jerusalem. Talk about temptation. You can make a few extra bucks. It's not a bad thing. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It's amazing. Nehemiah wasn't on a power trip. He kept saying, he kept beating the same drum. God, this is, we've seen this movie. You know, our forefathers dealt with this. They had no temple. They, they, were, they were destroyed by the, the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Come on. We we're going down the same path. It's not good. So the third point out of four is profaning the Sabbath. They promised, you know, we're not going to, you know, we're going to do the right thing and we're going to rest and we're going to, you know, worship. And, and here they are, carrying all kinds of burdens, selling 
And guess what? The, the unbelievers who they were supposed to be witnessing to were, were getting in on the thing too and even tempting them. Oh, we know you guys really want to buy these, this fish today. We know you really want to. This is fresh caught. You've got to get this fish. All right, all right, we'll open the doors. Nehemiah sees this and he goes ballistic in, in a good way, I suppose. But he rebukes now, he rebuked the leaders. Now he's rebuking the nobles with these ungodly business practices. And we know, you ever meet a believer who they're all about money, you know? And you wonder about that. You wonder about that. It kind of mars their witness for Christ because it's like anything for that last dollar. And the question is, does our lifestyle honor God? You know, are we putting things and stuff ahead of God? I have to get that very last whatever. Or is God up front? Verse 18, Nehemiah reminds them of really the 70-year captivity of, of the Israelites, of really the southern kingdom, because of profaning the Sabbath or the Sabbath year, really, okay? Um, again, there's a lot of re repetitive themes that pretty much come up here. And, and again, is the, que the question is, is God, is God a priority in our life? Or are we squeezing him into a little room into our life? Or squeezing some time to spend with him? Verse 19, continue. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They were actually sleeping outside because they wanted to trade with the Israelites. Talk about temptation. So I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Now, I don't think that he meant he was going to lay hands on them to pray over them. That's just my personal opinion. Okay? From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath, and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. Again, Nehemiah is a solutions-oriented leader. And he was concerned. And he was actually right because he, so they, it seems like they listen again, but we know from the 5th century B.C. to the 1st century A.D., right, the Jewish wars of, of uh, A.D. 66 through 70, that at the end, that the Romans did destroy the temple and the walls again. So he was prophetic in what he was saying here. And verses 20 through 21, the merchants, again, they were spending, uh, they were spending time, like probably camping out for the night outside the wall, and they figured, you know, they'll eventually come out here and we'll trade with them. And it was this, this chipping away. You know, you ever read about those jailbreaks, whether it's a medium security prison or even a, a top security prison? We have concrete, we have steel, we have computers, we have automatic locking doors, these heavy gate bar, you know, in these prisons. And every so often we read about another person. And these are all true stories. And what happens? So the inmate is, he's in there and somehow he gets, he procures a metal sharp object and at night he pulls his bed away from the wall and he finds a block in the corner and he just chip, 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 chip. Then he goes to bed. And in the morning, there might be a little teaspoonful of dust. But he does that for days and weeks and months, and eventually, there's a big hole in the block. 
<laughs> and one day it's big enough for him to fit through and he goes through a laundry chute or a, a garbage chute or whatever the case may be and they're like, where'd, where'd uh, Mr. Johnson go? Where'd Prisoner Johnson go? He, we can't account for him anywhere. Look at the security cameras. Oh, there's some guy in, in orange running <laughs> across the front lawn. How did that happen? Well, he just was chipping away. You know, I mean, I could have named this chipping away at the spiritual walls of our hearts. And that's what the enemy wants to do. Chip, 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 chip. It's just a few dollars here and there. Eh, look on that on the website. It'll take you to that. Oh, it's okay. You could repent later. Oh, uh, you know, get involved in the discussion about that person that they're picking on. It's, it's kind of cool. Because oh, that person, they bring it upon themselves. And, you know, you got all these different situations. It's just chip, 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 chip. And what happens? Eventually, there's a breach. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet many, among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused him to sin. They were the catalyst. They were the catalyst. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashab, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite, Therefore I drove him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So four, they're breaking their promises. This is four out of four uh, to not intermarry with these people. And, and these people did really bad stuff. Uh, every once in a while, and I love to read about excavation in the Holy Land, and sometimes it's really depressing. And uh, some of the pagan peoples, they were so twisted, really following demonic deities. And people do that today too, by the way. And um, there's some Christian leaders that say, oh, all roads lead to God. No, they don't. Not if you're following demonic practices. But in the walls of some of these homes, there would be bones of like infants. And, and this was a common thing. And they were so wicked that they would uh, kill their own children and worship them up to their false God and then take their bones and put them in a, it was like a good luck charm. People do weird stuff today, too, and you say, well, nobody does that today. Well, there's a lot of really weird stuff that happens in the world that is just overlooked, and we think, hey, let's just all get on board with that. Hey, let's not. These are bad and corrupting influences. So what, what about Solomon? He's speaking about King Solomon, who was uh, arguably had the Israel's borders at the greatest that they'd ever been. Uh, he, was, he, he gained wealth for the people. Everyone's standard of living increased, but he had all these wives, and God said, one man, one woman. And he had all these wives and multiplied them, and they pulled his heart away from Yahweh, the true God, into, these, into this idolatry, and God punished him, his progeny, and also the nation for th their idolatry. You know, some people ask me, so Pastor Joe, it's one of these conundrum questions, so Solomon was the wisest man in the Bible, and he wrote Proverbs, and you know, no one is as wise as him, but he did all these stupid things. 
Well, Solomon did actually a lot of good things, okay? But Solomon's problem, it reminds me of somebody who's so highly intelligent, but they don't always use their brains. They make decisions out of their flesh. They make decisions out of peer pressure. Um, also, you, you know that person who's great at counseling everybody else, but they can't take their own counsel. To me, that's Solomon. It's funny, isn't it? You know, he, he was incredibly brilliant. And we're still reading the Proverbs and learning from the Proverbs. Business practices, relationship practices, and look at what he's doing. You know, so, you know what's funny Jesus said about the religious leaders? What did he say? Do what they say, don't do what they do. They were really good at telling people what everyone needed to do but they really had a hard time looking in the mirror and taking their own advice. So Solomon really caused the downfall of the kingdom and really caught, he's really the reason why it split in two. Uh, it was not unified after his reign. Uh, now, verse 28, Elishab, the high priest, his family was practicing these mixed marriages. Now again, this, not, this isn't an ethnicity issue. This is a spirituality issue. Okay, I keep needing to say that. So here's an idea, or here's an understanding. What would happen is if you had two kingdoms that were, and this happened between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, the Egyptian dynasty, and then the, the Near East, Middle Eastern dynasty, and there was just a lot of these wars, and a lot of people were getting killed. So what they did was, instead of turning to God, and that would probably be a good idea, and accepting each other as brethren, that would be great if people did that today too, but it's not happening. What they did was they would send their daughters to the foreign land and have the, their daughter marry the son of that monarch. And then this would go back and forth. So it's really kind of hard to wage war on a kingdom and start killing people when some of those people you're killing are your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. So this was a worldly way to stop the wars and stop the fighting and build these alliances. And this is what Solomon did. And there was peace, but at what price? Instead of counting on God, Solomon counted on the alliances. And this happened with the Ptolemies and the Seleucids as well. Here's, here's another question. See if everybody's awake this morning. I got all these questions in my bag this morning. How many people think Cleopatra? By the way, there are several. I love history. Okay, um, there were several Cleopatras in in that line. How many people think that Cleopatra was ethnically an Egyptian African queen? Ethnically, how many people raise your hand? Okay. Okay, so the most of you didn't raise your hand. Um, when we covered this, sorry I tricked you for those that did raise your hand. In the Daniel study, Cleopatra was sent, right, to the Egyptian dynasty as this alliance so that it would help to stop the wars. It would stem the tides of the wars. She was not ethnically Egyptian. She was actually from the Greek line. Interesting, isn't it? But again, it's these alliances, so we, we covered that enough about that. Um, this problem with the priesthood and the corruption comes up again in Malachi 1 and 2. It comes up in the first century with Josephus, Flavius, the Jewish priest turned Roman historian. He speaks about the corruption, not biblical, completely secular work. He reinforced everything that Jesus said when he spoke about the, the corruption. So continuing on, verse 30 and 31, last two verses. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service. Get them back in the game. Get them back into the service of, the God, of God is what they were supposed to be doing from the first place. And to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. He says this four times in one chapter. I look at this way. Nehemiah is, is a human being like you and I, right? Nehemiah is saying, Lord, remember me. 
Lord, I tried. I want my reward to be from you and not from people because I can see how, and I'm, I'm speaking, I'm, I'm eisegeting, I'm speaking for Nehemiah. Uh, embellish me for a moment. And he's basically saying, Lord, I tried to do everything I could do. You saw when I left, I left everything in order. I came back, it's a mess. I'm trying again. I'm replacing the leadership. I'm putting everything back in, in order. At some point, I've got to leave again. And Lord, I, I did everything I could do. The situation's out of my control. Do we ever say that to God? Sure we do. And you know what? The Lord sees. <laughs> and you know what? We don't, we don't necessarily have to tell him. He does. He knows our heart. He knows when we've tried. He knows when we failed. He knows that when we tried so hard and put so much effort into it, but other people are involved and they start messing things up on it. God knows, <laughs> right? He does. And that's an awesome thing. I just love this, this humility and I love this, you know, frailty in Nehemiah. We look at him as just, wow, he pulled their hair out. He, he chased people away. He told them he was going to arrest them. Uh, and you think, wow, man, this guy's tough. But he saw himself as the way he should, with the humility. Now, some I love the I love commentators. I just sometimes I just I'm done with my study and I read stuff. I love commentators how they can look back at somebody and be so critical. Well, Nehemiah was a glory hound. He was looking for um, accolades from God, and I, I just don't see it that way. I say that if you scrutinize, including me, any leader, you sit around long enough and start picking them apart. You can, you can find, listen, I'll tell you right up front, I got plenty of flaws. So you don't need to find them. They're there. I have to repent of them. The, the case is settled. I don't think I'm perfect. So move on to somebody else. But the bottom line is that, is that you can pick apart any leader. But I think that he or she, we have to take the totality of their life and say, what type of person is this? It's very easy to criticize somebody until you're in their shoes and realize, wow, all eyes are on me. Well, I made that mistake. I said that I shouldn't have. Boy, these people aren't forgiving me for that. You know, so there you have it. And goes, going back to the elections, which are coming up fast, don't find your salvation in a party. Don't find your salvation in a, in a, po a politician. Find your salvation in Jesus Christ. Yep. And regardless of who you want and what they do and what utopia they promise you, because they're all promising utopia, the real utopia is going to come when Jesus Christ comes out of that cloud in Revelation 19 on his horse and he says everything straight. That's what I'm looking for. I'm done with the political parties, believe me. So we move on. Nehemiah. <laughs> Nehemiah leaves. Everything's good. Nehemiah comes back. Everything's a mess. Well, before, one, one thing that happened just before Nehemiah left, there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of promises. There was a lot of emotionalism. And there wasn't a lot of follow-through. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, let that not be us. You know, people will look at our life in totality based on, are we faithful? Are we reliable? Do we have a habit of saying, I'm going to do this or be somewhere, and we're not? Not good. Some believe that uh, Nehemiah, the gap between him leaving and coming back was anywhere between 2 and 12 years. And, you know, a lot of people started, don't get me wrong, there was no doubt scores of people who were doing the right thing. He obviously found some leaders to replace the ones that weren't doing the right thing. So it wasn't like everybody went apostate, but enough of them did to make a mess of the city and the spiritual system. And unfortunately, a lot of it was within the family of believers. You know, I mean, we can look at somebody today who seems like they're on fire for the Lord this month. Give it time. Let's see what happens in a year. 
You know, let's see if they're still really following the Lord strongly. We can look at society, we can look at the Christian culture, and I'm going to tell you there are forces today, and, and I've said this, Satan has his best and strongest demons in Washington, D.C., because there are forces in this country. Let me tell you something. We're becoming the pariahs in Christianity, Bible-believing Christians. We're in the way. We're in the way of the agendas. We're in the way of progress, so to speak. We're in the way of humanism. We're in the way of globalism because we believe what the Bible says. And there's these forces that are not only chipping away at our values in this country, but they've gotten, as, as Havner said, they've gotten inside the church, and they're also chipping away at orthodoxy. What does the Word of God say? I'm going to tell you something. I still adhere. If you came in and you're new, I, I adhere to God's Word. I believe that's the authority. Now, sometimes it takes a little while to study it and fully understand it, you know, especially when we get into the Hebrew and the Old Testament. Well, what's the context in what he's saying? That's my job. But I believe in the authority of the Scripture. Timothy tells us that. So we have a title. Now, I've heard the title of this message uh, and this study called Servant Leadership. Calvary Chapel, uh, in general, when they teach Nehemiah, they call it Servant Leadership. And this is a great term which has been perfected by Christ. What is Servant Leadership? Jesus said that the Gentiles lorded over each other. You know, they, they, they put their chests out. They say, I have rank. You don't. You have to do what I say. Right? I'm... I'm giving you more of what Jesus means. He says, but not you. If you want to be a leader and you want to be the greatest, be the servant. Be like a child. Be humble. Servant leadership. Nehemiah was. Now, at this point, it's kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back in Nehemiah 13. But he still strived to do the right thing and save the people from themselves. I believe that when Nehemiah rode into that city and he saw all the bad things, he looked at the children and the children were playing and the mothers were gathering together. And in his mind, he said, if I don't do something, this isn't going to last. They're going to come in. And they're going to have their way with these people. Because God's going to remove his protective hand. So I believe that Nehemiah was a servant leader. And again, when Jesus came, he perfected, of course, the concept of servant leadership. What did he do? Just hours before he went to the cross, he washed the feet of his disciples. That was reserved in that culture not saying that Jesus believed this because he went over that culture for the servants and the slaves. And, and Peter was aghast when Jesus started taking off that sandal and started washing his dirty feet. Peter was freaking out. No, Lord, this is not for you. Peter. <laughs> How many times did he probably say, Peter, you have no part in me if you don't let me do this. Okay, then wash everything. Got to love Peter. Brothers and sisters, it would be a shame if we didn't go through this book and not find an application for our own personal lives. I titled it Unqualified Yet Achieving the Impossible because I believe, I, I believe this too, that with God all things are possible. I, be, I believe this, that you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I still believe those things. 25 years later after getting saved. And I'm going to tell you something. I believe that our country is running low. We're at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to leaders. And even in some ways, the Christian culture, leaders having the courage, and there are a few that are speaking out. And there are, a lot of one, there are a lot of them that are hiding because they don't want the backlash. They see what happens. So the bottom line is this. God may be calling somebody in this room or a bunch of somebodies to be the next leader in some way or shape or form. Will you answer his call? 
Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.